Hello and a warm welcome to Tech Advantage, a podcast from the Luxembourg Institute of Science and Technology. Are you someone who's anxious that the world's being slowly but surely taken over by intelligence that's artificial? Do you ask yourself, so is there someone who's regulating all this ChatGPT stuff? And what is ChatGPT anyway? Can you tell if I am a human or a robot? Well, I'm not, of course. But is there a possibility that this podcast might be hosted by a human-like chatbot one day? Okay, before we go into any more speculations, let's welcome our guest, who probably has some answers. Today we have with us Francesco Ferrero, who's the director of the IT for Innovative Services department here at List. Welcome, Francesco. Hello, Paramita. Thank you very much for having me in the show. Let me tell you first, um, I was looking forward to this very much, you know, to this episode, because with all this hype, generative AI, chat GPT, BARD and whatnot. So first, first tell me, because, you know, even one year ago, even in 2023, beginning 2023 or even late 2022, at least me, I had never even heard about this thing, chat chat GPT or even, okay, generative AI, maybe a little bit. So what is it exactly? How, where did it come from? So I think, Paramita, you are in the same uh, spot where most of the human population is today. And they have been taken by surprise by something that has had uh, an impressive uh, penetration speed. I believe it's by far the technology that has reached uh, one million adopters in the shortest time ever. And you should know this record has been broken again and again in the past years, but this time was even more spectacular. So ChatGPT is an artificial intelligence system. It is what we call a large language model that can conversate with humans uh, in a way that very much resembles a spontaneous natural conversation with another person. And the beauty of this is really, I believe, the user experience. So we, the people like me who have been in this job of monitoring the evolution of technologies, of course we have heard about this stuff since a few years. A few and years already? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think the, the most important advancement in the direction of creating these powerful large language models dates back to 2017 when a team of researchers from Google AI wrote mm -hmm. a, a very important paper called Attention is All What You Need that introduced the concept of the transformers and this is a new way, let's say, to process uh, information by a model that uh, substantially, to simplify it for our audience, is able to work in parallel instead of working in a sequential way. So is able to capture, let's say, fragments of text in a much faster and more efficient way. The, the artificial intelligence? Yeah, this transformer model and oh, okay. this is what the T actually in GPT stands for. 
And uh, yeah, this has been a recent advancement that has allowed, you know, to scale this thing up to the level that we are seeing today. And I think the most uh, important thing in its penetration is really the user interface on the yeah. other end. It's not really, you know, the technology. So we have seen previous versions of this model that were not uh, so performing. But the real difference is that everybody can use this now, right? So you don't need to know anything about programming. You don't need to work with APIs. You don't need to install complex softwares on your machine. You simply open a web page and you start your conversation and uh, you have this feeling that it's magic, right? And I think when I'm <laughs> working with these tools, which I do very often also with my kids who are five and seven years old, they really have this feeling. I work especially with DALI, which is the model that now is included in uh, GPT-4, is also coming from OpenAI that generates images, you know, yes. and they can just ask, uh, generate for me an image of a little fairy princess, and they see it popping up, and this is, feels like magic, absolutely. I'm amazed uh, every time uh, when I see this, and so I think that's the real explanation for which it has accelerated. But of course, there's been a lot of research uh, that went into this. So I think uh, artificial intelligence has not been a technology that has progressed linearly, right? So it started uh, in the 50s and in the, between the 50s and the 70s, we have the yearly phase of AI research. So the concept of machines that could simulate human intelligence. And uh, it evolved and uh, machine learning, which is uh, a very powerful way of learning from data rather than following uh, instructions that yeah. are explicitly yeah. programmed, uh, dates back to the 80s until, the, let's say, the year two, 2000. And then you had the deep learning revolution, uh, the yeah. big advancement, because these allowed to create uh, uh, a subset of machine learning that involves neural networks, but with many layers. Yeah. So these are called deep neural networks. And this has enhanced the capacity of these systems in a dramatic way. And then you have the first generative models in uh, mid-2010s, which were not the large language models uh, that we have today. The language models started to arrive uh, uh, in the late 2010s onwards. We had the first GPT, we had BERT, and then the transformers we mentioned, and then the period that we call of the democratization of yeah, artificial exactly. intelligence, which is what we have today. What is amazing is that like you were saying the 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 level of the or the um how do i say the speed in which that it has been adopted i remember i did a um i used to do a podcast uh, some years back and I, i did one with um the head of ai at at pwc at the time uh, and we we were we were talking about all these you know neural network and deep learning and machine and i don't remember you know even even talking about these things at that time it was in 2018 i think so it's 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 amazing the 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 speed of the advancement uh the way that it's it's going and um so the thing is you know you're talking about it's it's like magic right it is like magic i mean i i read the other day that you know it can 
uh, write stories for you know like bedtime stories and, and parents are using it for bedtime stories do you think it's going to take over everything because the other day i was having a talk with a colleague of mine in the office and she was saying and we were saying that do we even need us can chatgpt do literally everything you know well of course parameter i think this is the 100 million dollar question that everybody is asking these days right and uh, the problem is there isn't a simple answer to that so of course chatgpt or the current large language models are not powerful enough to replace every human worker or most human workers even but there are now companies i think uh, deepmind from google or meta that are declaring openly that their objective is to create uh, artificial general intelligence oh, it's gosh. a concept on which there is no agreement even on the definition but it basically means an artificial intelligence that can do just everything that can create new things that can invent new ways to solve problems uh, like a human or more than a human uh, and uh, the problem of uh, workers replacement is a key discussion and a key concern in society for sure i mean we have seen this before right i mean every time there has been uh, a technology revolution in history think of the steam engine and then of the electric engine and then uh, more recently the first uh, examples of robotization i mean this has always created uh, a very strong reaction by people who felt threatened by the technology and they were you know fearing that they would be replaced and this is not what we have observed historically so what we have observed is that every revolution of this kind has actually increased the productivity of the overall economy has generated more welfare and also the working conditions of people have improved but of course this is what you see from the collective point of view and the problem that we might have is that some individuals will suffer so i do believe that society as a whole will benefit from this because the potential of this technology is so amazing it accelerates the things uh, that you do it can allow you to do new things it can discover new medicines or you know in a time that is a fraction of what was necessary before but there will be people who will be affected and they will have to either you know retrain themselves yeah. or to drastically change their profession uh, yeah i i have a i have a small question in there you're right you're completely right that every time in history that there has been a sort of um industrial revolution for example you know or when the this um i remember there was this um there was a riot sort of a thing when then when they invented uh you know milling factories you know and they, the the weavers the were movement, yeah. yeah that was different somehow isn't it because it was always one sector or something because but this as you said that this is so much advanced and so much powerful and like you said new medicine researchers you know translators proofreaders i don't know teachers writers creative artists even code you know programming code the, the i mean 
where does it stop really because if if there is like you said the the general artificial intelligence i mean why we survived as humankind you know and whatever the, the other species they perished is probably is, yeah. is the adaptability we have always known to adapt to new living conditions but are we are we intelligent enough uh, in front of the artificial intelligence to survive okay the honest answer is that we don't know uh, so we need to be prepared for different uh, scenarios and i believe a key factor in all these is the speed at which the transition takes place right because if there is enough time from now let's say and the moment when we have something that can be identified as artificial general intelligence this will give us time to adapt and yeah. to think how to manage that and probably people will learn you know how to work in a way that their contribution to society is augmented by artificial intelligence is not replaced by artificial intelligence and there are things uh, that certainly are far for the moment at least from being replaced everything that is cognitive emotion uh, you know understanding the emotions of people uh, transmitting a sense of solidarity so all these things the caretaking all these things will never be replaced at least by the current technology again i cannot really say what will happen one day when we might have something that actually thinks like a human which is far from what we have now so mm. these are just statistics models that create sentences based on statistical calculations some of the cause them uh, you know stochastic parrots because they yeah. repeat concepts that they have learned by ingesting billions of data points uh, and uh, attributing uh, a likelihood to the next word that will come in a sentence but they don't understand what they're talking about they don't have this you know uh, cognitive experience but maybe the new frontier of artificial intelligence will get there so if there is enough time to adapt and to augment and uh, and to change the way in which we work so that uh, it is uh, you know a collaboration between humans and ai that's fine but if the transition is very fast which we can't really say that might be an issue because then the people will probably not have time you know to reskill themselves or to learn how to coexist with the technology Yeah. So in the first scenario there's something that we can do uh, for instance at the least we work a lot on uh, programs for upskilling and reskilling people enlist yes yeah. we have technology that can do that so you, we have created uh, for instance uh, an important uh, company that is a list spin-off that is called OAT open assessment yeah. technology uh, that has recently been acquired by one of the largest providers of digital education tools in the world which is Uchida Yoko a Japanese company so OIT is the company that delivers for instance the assessment uh, systems that are used in the PISA test in the OECD we can use we have applied similar approaches to test the readiness of workers uh, in moving towards uh the demand for new skills and to calibrate you know the training that they must go through 
we now have a program to involve people um, on the job learning of artificial intelligence. So we have a large number of projects in artificial intelligence. And so workers from other companies or public organizations, they could come to LIST and work with our scientists and engineers on real-world you know, AI projects so that they learn right. the technology on the job. We are very keen to do that. But if we go for the very fast you know, revolution, mm-hmm. then this won't be enough. And then there is only politics, I believe, that can give an answer. The, the next part of, uh, of my questions were effectively about you know, the, the political scenario and, and something related to you know, what Europe has uh, recently done with the AI Act. Uh, which is also, I think, related to ethics, you know, a big, big consideration in all these things is where does the bias, I mean, is there a way that we can stop bias in in AI and in generative AI? So that is one of the questions that I wanted to ask you. And what are the ethical considerations that we need to um, take into account? So ethical AI is a one of the most important topics that is on our table today, you know, as a public organization, uh, uh, public research and technology organization, we really believe in this and it's part of our mission to contribute to that. I think that the people are right to be concerned because what we see today is that uh, a very small number of private actors is dominating uh, the technology. So the very powerful models, the best performing ones, are most uh, are mostly commercial models. Uh, to date, there isn't an open source model that is able to match the ability of GPT-4, for instance, on a number of benchmarks. And these models are black boxes because we don't know on which data sets they have been trained and we know actually very little on how they have been created. Uh, and this has been a change in direction because when OpenAI was created, it had the name OpenAI because they wanted to deliver every technology that they would develop as open source, open for the world to scrutinize, uh, transparent. And then when they arrived at the time when their technology became very powerful, they decided that this wouldn't be the case anymore. And they said this was to protect the people because delivering such a powerful technology as open source would be a danger because malevolent actors could, uh, you know, uh, appropriate themselves of the technology, remove all the safeguards that are built into it and just use it for any type of bad thing that you can imagine. And it's also a way, of course, in which uh, they made, uh, you know, a spectacular commercial success because in this way, keeping it as a secret and commercializing it, there's a lot of profit, of course, involved. But the point is humanity cannot accept uh, that we take decisions or, uh, you know, use tools in our work on a daily basis which are trained on data sets that we don't know. And so we get to your point on bias. Bias, which means, for instance, that the model would uh, answer differently about a specific uh, situation, whether the individual concerned is a man or a woman, whether based on the color of his skin, based on his political convictions, 
bias is inherent in all this technology because it has been trained by humans by humans and based on data that were publicly available yeah. on the web so we don't know actually on which data gpt4 has been trained but we know pretty well on which data gpt3 has been trained and this is a, a collection of all the text that is available in the web and this is super biased first of all because of the language so most of it is in english in american english by the way and because it reflects you know the cultural and value model of only part of the humanity right because uh, what uh, the americans think i, I don't have anything against uh, americans I have a lot of americans friends and a lot of respect for the country but i mean this is just one way of looking at the world that maybe is not reflected in my country italy or in your country or somewhere else and so this bias that is inherent into this data is reflected into these algorithms and so this is why you need to do something about that so what are we doing about that and this will let me introduce the concept of our list ai sandbox right? that this is something that we are pre-releasing now with a number of selected uh, stakeholders in the country before we make it public but we really want to make this a public thing so the sandbox essentially is a, a tool where you can test the mainstream large language models but every large language models against a number of benchmarks that are publicly available that have been created by the open source community and they would assign a score to the model based on the answers that they give to a standard set of questions and based on the bias they can detect in these answers and this would be a score for gender for race for sexual orientation for some political thinking for the age so it can be for so, anything so just so, so i understand correctly so the ai sandbox what it will do is researchers will test all these uh large language models yeah the, the language models against against what what will they test these so there models? are libraries of uh, of questions uh, that are available as open source yeah and these questions are formulated in a way that they detect the bias in the answers right. because the for instance if you into a specific profession let's say a barman the model could suggest uh, that the person that is doing that is coming from a specific uh, you know subset of uh, mankind yeah call center has to be an indian voila it is good. so you get it <laughs> so you they have hundreds of these questions yeah. they ask them they they slightly change the question in a way that triggers you know maybe the bias and they they analyze the answer and they detect the bias and then they assign a score from 0 to 1 which tells you if a model is very biased or if it not biased at all and these are hundreds of tests and then we create a leaderboard and so you know that the, a specific model is the best one oh, when you okay. talk about gender bias but maybe it doesn't perform so well on racial bias and another one is better at this but maybe worse at that and so this is a first thing we will publish every week an update of this leaderboard and so people who look for a model that you know matches with their values they will have a chance you know to go there and find the best model in this respect 
And then there is also, and this will be for free and it will be accessible as a website by everyone. To do public? Public, yeah. Ah, okay. And then there will be a service. And this one, of course, we will have to, you know, sell at the price because as a, an organization that is funded by public money, we need to recover the investment that the taxpayer not has, has made into <laughs> yeah. the research that is yeah. behind it. So there will be a service where you can, for instance, send us your model. Uh, and your model doesn't need to me doesn't need to be a model that has been created from scratch. Because many people, what they do is they take an open source model and they fine-tune it. They add some knowledge, some additional training data to it in order to fine-tune it. And you can test if your fine-tuned version of the model, for instance, scores better or worse than the original against a set of biases. So we can, you know, analyze your model for you and tell you how it performs against these biases. And then you can also ask as a question, what would be the best model that I can use uh, in order to have something that is very robust against specific biases. And this is super important because if you are playing at home in your free time, you don't really care a lot about the, you know, the bias in the answers that you get, or maybe you are prepared to that and so you're able to filter. But if we think that these models will become the bread and butter of students in schools... In what way? Well, in the sense that, uh, I mean, you cannot stop the progress, right? I think the state of New York tried to, to prevent students in the schools to use chat GPT because there was, of course, uh, the suspect that the people were just uh, using that to do their homework uh, and copying the answers <laughs> yeah. and then stopping, you know, they, they weren't studying anymore because GPT-4 was doing the job for them. And then after a few months, uh, there was such a backlash in this thing that they had to cancel this decision because this is also a powerful learning tool uh, and you can create opportunities for students to learn using this model. It's, it's a fantastic research tool and it's a tool that can provide personalized tutoring in a way to people. Uh, so it can yeah. help you step by step to learn something. Uh, yeah, okay. Um I have so many questions, but, but we won't have time. Maybe we'll do another episode. Yeah, or we episode. do, we do cuts, <laughs> uh, no problem. But tell me about the EU AI Act. What What is it about? I mean, why did the EU heads think that they need this act? And uh, what are the, the key provisions that uh, it has uh, laid out? So the EU is trying to find its own way around artificial intelligence. It is clear to everyone who knows uh, this matter that Europe is lagging behind in terms of the knowledge and research and innovation about AI. I, I'm laughing because I, I, this December I was at a Christmas dinner and everybody was discussing and there, there are two people in my extended family who are these big um, uh, IT people, you know. And, and um, so we were talking about this EU AI Act that had was just voted and and they started saying, well, yeah, but Europe just knows that, how to regulate, how to talk about uh, bringing up bills, <laughs> bringing up laws. But when it comes to innovation, there is nothing. So this just uh, resonates with... with 
what you just said, uh, that we are actually lagging behind in terms of uh, innovation. So I think there's a famous joke that I like very much from President Macron, the French president. Ah. He said that uh, the United States has GAFA, which stands for Google, Apple, Facebook, and Amazon. Yeah. China has BATCS, which stands for Baidu, Alibaba, Tencent, and Xiaomi. And Europe has the GDPR, so the general, <laughs> exactly. the general data protection regulation, yeah. right? And I think you could actually do the same joke today for the AI Act. So it's clear that, uh, yeah, Europe has struggled for many reasons to create these digital champions that have led uh, the revolution in the US and China. And in every benchmark on AI, we see that these two countries are, are dominating and that Europe stands way behind. So Europe is acting as a regulator. It's what uh, is called a regulatory superpower because <laughs> it has a very large yes. market yeah. of people who have uh, you know, the possibility also to spend uh, intensively in technology. And every company in the world wants to access this market. And, of course, so the regulations that are emitted by Europe, uh, they become a sort of global standard. We have seen that around privacy because the GDPR has been then copied in a way or it has inspired, let's say, other regulations in Canada, in the U.S., etc. And the same Europe hopes at least to make the same trick now with AI. Uh, and uh, and uh, the good thing is that... Uh, The AI Act is important. I don't yes. want to diminish yes. its importance yeah. because regulating AI is clearly something that we need uh, in respect of the things that I was saying before and of the yeah. dangers that the misuse of AI could uh, pose to humanity. So what the AI Act does in a nutshell is to ask, you know, to classify AI systems based on the level of risk that they provide. So the there are systems that are considered at very low risk, uh, and here typically you would have everything that is open source and is related to research or where the application domain is extremely limited and unharmful. And there are high-risk systems, you know, such as if you are if you are using an AI algorithm to decide whom you are hiring for a job, this is a high-risk system. And there are even things that are considered so high-risk that you don't want them in the first place, such as this video surveillance technology with automatic recognition of people from their faces, which is, by the way, uh, a standard technology in other parts of the world, I think of, of Asia, of course, here. And uh, Europe will not accept it unless for very exceptional cases uh, of security with uh, very stringent, uh, you know, regulations. And so depending on the level of risk, you will have an increasing number of checks uh, and balances that are introduced and on limits on your technology. And you will have to audit your technology. You will have to certify uh, what is the level of risk and you will have to show to the regulator that you have uh, applied all the necessary 
countermeasures and uh, taking into account all the limitations that are, you know, dictated by the Act, depending on that level of risk. So, do they? Does the Act speak of ethics? And uh... so, of course, it does, because uh, I mean, Europe is very clear in the fact that it prefers ethical AI and trustworthy AI and AI that is based on fairness, respect of the privacy. Uh, free from bias, and so this all started. All discussion on the AI Act started with the work of a high-level committee of experts that were defining a number of ethical guidelines, and they were the founding principles on which the AI Act is based. But now my concern is that Europe cannot be only a regulatory superpower. It yeah. needs to become also a technology and innovation superpower. Because AI is becoming so important, it is also a technology with inherent strategic components. Uh, it is clear, for instance, that it can be used for cyber attacks that are much more powerful than the standard cyber attacks that would be conducted by humans. It can be used to pilot automatic weapons, uh, oh, and so this is all, you know pointing to the fact that there is, in the political sphere, a clear uh, concern that uh, the countries that control AI could ultimately become the countries that control the world. And I think, for instance, I'm a big fan of Henry Kissinger's book, on a recent book on AI. Unfortunately, you know, he passed away recently, but... When he was already more than 90 years old, uh, he wrote uh, during COVID, by the way, a great book about AI where they were, you know, highlighting the relevance of this concept for geopolitics. And, you know, he was certainly a champion of geopolitics because it is inherently a geopolitical threat uh, mm. that needs to be managed. So. So Europe cannot depend on technology that is developed uh, elsewhere for everything that is AI-related. Uh, it's the same story that we saw with the GPS, so the American Global Positioning System, system yeah. and the decision by Europe to create Galileo. Because since the GPS was so important, so it's uh, fundamental for everything in war, in the combat field, but also in finance, because it dictates also the time. So to establish who was the first uh, on a trade, you use GPS for the time. It synchronizes the electrical network. So Europe decided, okay, we need to have our own technology because if one day things will go wrong <laughs> with the United States, yeah. and I think we all see that the risk is more concrete, you know, than people might have thought some yeah. years ago. Uh, you know, the American elections will approach <laughs> very soon and we don't yes. know what the outcome would be and what this will mean for the transatlantic relations. But I think you always need to think, if someone goes wrong with my friends, do I have the ability to act independently, you know, and to do a lot of fundamental things for, from which my population depends without their technology. And you need to be ready for that. Europe does need to do maybe more. And what is it doing? Especially in LIST, you already spoke about a lot of projects that are going on. And uh... Uh, you, If you ask what Europe is doing there, of course, Europe is doing a lot. So they are promoting, uh, you know, uh, a lot of research 
projects through the Horizon Europe, the Digital Europe program and other calls. And LIST is also an institute that uh, has a very good uh, involvement in this cause. For instance, we are the only organization in Luxembourg that is a member of a testing and experimentation facility for artificial intelligence, what is called an AI TEF. And this is, uh, you know, a project in which we create a sort of controlled environment where companies that have data and that want to create a solution in the field of electromobility, they can come to us and, you know, uh, do it with us, also with funding from the projects and with support from our researchers and engineers in order to do that and to experiment also how the regulation, the upcoming regulation, so exactly the AI Act, might impact the business model of their tool. And and this is the TEF is really considered as a precursor of the AI Act. On the field of self-driving cars, Europe also sponsors projects. List was coordinator of a very important project that has just ended that was called Pascal, and it was about the social acceptance of autonomous cars in which we worked, for instance, with driving schools in Italy and the United Kingdom in order to, you know, allow people to learn uh, with uh, a sort of uh, home learning tool that least provided how to drive a car that is incorporating increasing levels of autonomy. Hmm. But the point about self-driving cars is an interesting story for AI. I think a few years ago, I was working a lot in that space personally before being the director of ITIS. I was uh, into the mobility field. Everybody was expecting a few years ago that you would have fully self-driving cars coming very soon on the streets. And there was a sort of excitement and a lot of money was going into this. And I think that ultimately companies such as Uber were created with that in mind, right? Because the perfect business model for Uber would be when you can remove the human drivers from the equation and you have these fleets of self-driving taxis that just pick people around and bring them (laughs) to a place and then relocate them uh, automatically to the next customer. And I read books that were describing this beautiful world in which you wouldn't need to own a car anymore. You would just summon an Uber or an autonomous car, let's say, with your phone anytime you needed one. And this would have increased because, you know, car is the most underused asset that we have. I stand still for 33 hours uh, in a normal day. (laughs) It occupies a lot of space and, you know, we don't have space uh, in our cities especially. So a lot of material goes into creating these. It's polluting. So having cars that are used uh, 16 or 24 hours a day instead of one would be something good probably for the environment. Yeah. And so we were all, you know, very enthusiastic. But this has not happened, uh, de facto, not until now, and probably not, that's my best guess at the moment, until the recent recent future. Because uh, this is a case in which uh, it's difficult to train your AI. Because even though there are companies now that are collecting experience on driving millions of miles or kilometers, with self-driving cars, so-called, so with limited levels of autonomy. Uh, This isn't enough, you know, to cover what we call the corner cases, so the very exceptional things that might happen 
when, for instance, an airplane decides that they need to land on a street, on a road, because they cannot reach the airport. I'm talking about true stories here. So it's clear that, you know, uh, you can have uh, the highest amount of self-driving miles, but you have never seen something like that. <laughs> and luckily, the human brain today has the capacity, you know, yeah. to adapt to this situation. And that's what uh, the uh, general intelligence is about. And mm. uh, current artificial intelligence, it just doesn't, right? And so, mm. yeah, there are limits to this technology. It also cannot be used really in bad weather today. For instance, if it snows, the sensors that these cars use, the lidars especially, they cannot really work. And these limitations ultimately are, are very, you know, uh, high and are preventing the technology from arriving to the level that the people would have expected a few years ago. Well, as we are almost out of time, let's end our discussion on this positive note that, you know, at least the chauffeurs and the taxi drivers won't be replaced <laughs> very soon by artificial intelligence. Thank you so much, Francesco. It was wonderful talking to you. And uh, because I still have a lot of questions, I hope we can, you know, sit sometime um, sit later on one day and uh, talk about these things again. Thank you, Paramita. And with great pleasure, we can talk again when you want. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you.